When we read this together as we studied it on Wednesday night, I asked people to be prepared to say that last response to the scripture with a question mark. Thanks be to God? We'll get to that a little bit later. I'm not sure if you heard it, but this parable is very similar to another parable that you may be familiar with. It's in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 25, and it is known as the parable of the talents. Now, this seems to be a little bit different than that one, if you were listening closely. The parable of the talent seems mostly to be about stewardship, a theme that is definitely present in this parable, but if we're not careful, we'll miss some of the meaning of this parable by focusing on what's similar to the parable of the talents instead of noticing what's distinct, what's different, and quite frankly, what's quite disturbing. So in the time we have today, and and you may want to just open up your scripture, if you haven't done that yet, to Luke chapter 19, and you can even put a place marker in Matthew 25 so you can go back and look at those things. I'd like to point out some of those distinctions between the two parables, briefly mention a couple of common interpretations of this parable, and then finally ponder a third possible interpretation that I find intriguing and a little bit unsettling as well. So here's first the distinctions. In both parables, the servants are given a certain amount of money and the master goes away and comes back expecting the servants to have multiplied it. But but the two parables differ radically on the amounts given and what was distributed. The first of the three servants in Matthew's parable receives five talents, which is worth approximately 30,000 days wages for a common laborer. The other two receive less, but even a talent is worth about 6,000 days wages. So that, that's, that's a pretty good bit of money. Now in contrast, in Luke's parable here, all 10 servants receive the same amount. And the mina, not the talent, the pounds or the mina they receive is worth approximately 100 days wages. So in total, the king in this parable gives them all together about a thousand days wages, which is a lot for a laborer, but not very much for a king, especially when you consider that the master in Matthew's parable gave 48 times that much. And as a result, The rewards in this parable seem out of balance with the achievements of each servant. One person gives the king a year's wages and receives authority over ten cities. The king gives them a small amount, and if they are faithful, if they're successful, and if he is pleased, he gives them a large reward. So between the two parables, uh, the amounts are different, but the moral seems similar, right? To everyone who has, more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even that will be taken away. Use it or lose it, we might say, as we remember the importance of exercising good stewardship over all we've been given. And by the way, I hope we will. I hope we will exercise good stewardship over all we've been given. All of us, each of us and every single one of us, have been given a whole lot by God as individuals and as families 
And as a congregation, we have been richly blessed and God has given us much because God trusts us with much. And there's much work that needs to be done with what we've been given. Our ministry plan is designed to help us strengthen our impact for God and others in the world. We can only do that to the extent that we're all willing to participate with it. So I hope we all will, each and every single one of us. And that's about all I'm going to say about stewardship in this sermon. You can breathe now. (laughs) Moving on. The second distinction between the parable in Luke and the parable in Matthew is that this parable is not about a man who goes on a journey, but about a king who is claiming his kingdom. I titled today's sermon, Return of the King, which is not how you'll see it titled in the scripture, so that you would see the significance of this and that you might draw a connection between that and what's going on in the life of Jesus in this very moment. Notice what's happening there. We've just gotten through with the whole Zacchaeus thing and people are are receiving the money and the payment that Zacchaeus is giving and they're celebrating over that and then all of a sudden this parable and then notice what happens. Jesus tells this parable as he's nearing Jerusalem, then turns around and says, now get me a colt and the events of Palm Sunday begin. Jesus gets the colt. He rides into Jerusalem. People surround him, as we saw the children earlier, saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're declaring him to be their king. And so see, if you consider the context, it may become obvious why there's a difference between this and the parable of the talents. Because because if we think this is only a parable about stewardship here in Luke, we've missed something incredibly important. This parable has been strategically placed in this moment to give us a window into what Jesus was up to. So we need to remember that. Third, and this is very important, we should notice that in the parable of the talents there is no opposition to the master. But in this parable we're told the citizens of his country hated him. And sent a delegation after him to oppose this man's confirmation as king. Nevertheless, he did become king. He returned home. And after he rewarded those who had been faithful to him for doing what he'd asked, he does something incredibly disturbing. It may even hit a little more disturbing on this week as we consider some of the things that Connie was praying about a moment ago. Look at verse 27. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. That's how the passage ends in the NIV. Those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, when I read this, (laughs) I found it striking And my mind automatically went to kind of an alternative version of this leader. My mind automatically began to think, and this this may seem strange, but of Nelson Mandela, who had a strikingly different style of leadership from the king in this parable. Where after 27 years in prison, Mandela gets out of prison, negotiates an end to the apartheid in South Africa, is elected as president, and then he, what does he do? 
He doesn't line up his enemies for death, but he creates a broad coalition in his administration and makes significant moves toward reconciliation with white nationalist groups. I mean, it's really amazing when you think about it. Saying this, courageous people do not fear forgiveness for the sake of peace. Courageous people do not fear forgiving for the sake of peace. Mandela was an incredible leader. And his life and leadership still ought to serve as a challenging symbol of power, of the forgiveness and and reconciliation to all of us, far more, it seems, than the lead character in this parable. Which begs the question, I don't know if this is making you uncomfortable, but if you've read this before, this begs the question, who is this king? That Jesus is talking about. And how are we supposed to receive this story? Few options. For most of church history, this has been considered a parable that has been interpreted to be about a picture of last judgment. This idea that Jesus will come at the end of history and then what Jesus does, he'll return as king, reward those who were faithful to him in this life, and punish those who were not in a way that in this parable sounds really similar to the way that, say, ISIS deals with infidels. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really like that. I mean, common interpretation of this parable through much of church history, so we need to acknowledge it, but I don't really like that because to put all my cards on the table for you, I really just don't like to think of Jesus as someone who lines people up and kills them because I don't suspect that's what Luke is trying to tell us here, and I don't really like to think of Jesus like that. And I don't think that Luke's not trying to tell us here because that here because Luke didn't believe in the second coming. He obviously does. We see that in Acts. But because I suspect this story is about something that was happening much closer to Jesus' own day. And with that, a second option. Jesus is telling a story here about a king that comes back to see what his servants have been doing which seems really similar to what Jesus himself is doing, right? In the context we heard a moment ago, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, the end of his journey. After the parable, he'll ride into Jerusalem as king. They'll declare him king. Then he'll, as Angie said earlier, weep over the city. Declare that one day they would be punished by their enemies. And then once he arrived, he went into the temple, braided a whip and begin to drive out the money changers. A premeditated kind of driving out of the money changers. The prophets had spoken of this day long long ago, hadn't they? Long after the exiles returned to Jerusalem, the prophet Malachi had spoken of the Lord whom you seek, coming suddenly to temple, bringing fiery judgment. So is this what Jesus is doing here? Is Jesus the king in the parable? Perhaps. But I'm not so sure. The darkest parts of this parable are about the people who didn't want this man to be king and what happens with them. 
And we could easily assume, knowing the story of Jesus, for those of us who do, that we're thinking about, okay, Pharisees or Sadducees or anyone else who might have wanted to drive Jesus out of town or into the hands of the Roman soldiers. That makes a lot of sense, right? Only it wouldn't have made sense to them. It's not what the original hearers would have heard. No, the original hearers would have almost certainly remembered the story of Herod's older brother, Archelaus. This was not a fictional figure. Archelaus, uh, in fact, the distinctives of his story are very similar to the distinctives in this parable. Shortly after Jesus' birth, Roman support helped Herod the Great become king of Judea. Then after that, his son Archelaus went to to Rome to be confirmed as king and was followed by a delegation of Judeans who didn't want him to be king. Sound familiar? And and the, the events continue to unfold, and they sound very familiar to this parable, and I know you want me to historically go over each and every single one of them, but the real point of the story is it's borrowed from something that actually happened. With a bad king that they knew of, that they didn't like. So then what is Jesus doing with it? What's he doing with this story? Is he implying that, that now another unwanted king is in town who is in fact the true king and who, whose story and message is much better than Herod's? But has also still been rejected by the people? who only want to keep the kingdom for themselves? Is that what he's doing here? Is Jesus Jesus just making, using a bad character to make a good point like he does in the parable of the shrewd manager? Maybe. Maybe. And if so, the point is something we all ought to take seriously. Listen up. The true king has come into our lives And each and every single one of us do need to decide whether or not we're with him or against him. Whether or not we'd rather crown him the king of our lives or keep our kingdoms to ourselves. You know, some of us would really rather operate as the queens and kings of our own little worlds than give all of our allegiance to Jesus. And as we move through this holy week and even this time of worship, we really ought to wrestle with that. Could be. But still, there's a third option that I think is worth considering and wondering about today as we wonder what this parable might have for us. And that is this, that the king isn't Jesus at all. I really like this option because I just can't envision Jesus as the king in this parable. Can you? A hard man? Reaping what he did not sow, evoking so much fear in the people that the third servant was too afraid to even try. He was paralyzed by fear. I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound anything to me like the king of love. No, it actually sounds an awful lot like us. And like many of the unsteady, unstable leaders that most of us know of. Many of the unsteady and unstable leaders that most of us know somewhere deep down should never have been allowed to lead anything. 
Certainly not a kingdom where so many good lives are in their hands. No, no, I I just can't accept that this parable is a self-portrait. But instead, I think that maybe, just maybe, the king was exactly who the people thought. One of the unsteady and unstable, power-hungry people that they'd been subjected to in their lifetime. And I suspect Jesus might be saying to them and to us, yeah, you oppose one of those kings and they're going to burn you down. Give your allegiance to another king other than them and they're going to burn you down. Or in other words, follow me right now and in the days ahead, swear your allegiance to me and in the days ahead, I am warning you, someone is going to try to burn you down. Or to put it another way, The value system of Jesus is diametrically opposed to the king and the kingdom in this parable. Just as the value system of Jesus is often diametrically opposed to so many things going on in our country, in our culture, and in our community. And so in light of that, when push comes to shove, I wonder, where will your allegiance lie? When things get rough, when push comes to shove in your own life, in our community, in your family, with whatever's going on, where will your allegiance lie? Will you go with the flow? Keep the status quo just to see if you can fit in? Or will you align yourself with Jesus, even when it may cost you? Even when it may cause others in this world, in this country, in our community, and even in our church to become uncomfortable with you. What will you do? See, I think Jesus may be using this parable to prepare his disciples for the fact at this crucial moment that aligning themselves with Him and His purposes is going to make life very difficult for them. A good life, but not an easy life, right? Often the best things we have to do are hard things. I think back of Nelson Mandela, who I mentioned earlier in the sermon, in prison for all those years for standing up against racial injustice in South Africa and for trying to create a better world in a better way. I think of civil rights leaders like Rosa Parks, arrested for refusing to stand up and give up her seat on a bus. The city code said that if the bus was full and a white person boarded, she needed to stand up and give her seat away. But peacefully... She remained seated, which got her arrested and spawned a 381-day boycott of the Montgomery bus system and led to a Supreme Court decision banning segregation on public transportation. I think of a hero, Martin Luther King Jr., the Baptist minister, who helped change the face of this country through nonviolent protest. In prison five times and ultimately shot and killed because of his quest for justice and because his quest for justice and equality made many people like us 
uncomfortable. King's life still haunts me. His letter to his letter from a Birmingham jail was written to white Christian pastors like me, indicting the ones who were doing nothing. And I look out at our world and I look at the injustices that still go on all around us and I wonder what he would think of me. I wonder what King would think of me. What would King think of us? And I also wonder now what King Jesus thinks of us too. And I wonder if he's wondering, even today, why we're not getting ourselves into more trouble. Why we're not being more maligned for our alignment with him and those he desperately wants to see lifted up. A good life is never always an easy life. Nelson Mandela had a good life, not an easy life. Rosa Parks had a good life, not an easy life. Martin Luther King Jr. had a good life, we might say, but not an easy life. Something for us to consider. You know, I said I wasn't going to say anything else about stewardship today. But you know, ultimately, stewardship is a political issue. And the disciples of Jesus, then and now, have to choose between the present order of things and the order of a king whose kingdom has not yet fully been revealed. A king who does not give us large sums of money or power or influence, believe it or not, but who does expect us to use all that we have been given in expectation of and in partnership with the coming kingdom of God. Will you? We continue to wrestle with this even now as we worship our great and glorious King.